Hello and welcome. <laughs> well, Hello. <is> <laughs> uh, we can't. Oh wait, I should probably just finish. Uh, hello and welcome to some guys' art house movie guide, uh, the podcast where I uh, present movies to Anton, which is uh, this person. That's me. And uh, then we talk about him, see if he walks away with a full understanding of the movie. I think the format of the show change or my description changes each week. Um, but that's what it basically is. Uh, yeah, it used to be a show where we talked about cigars. Yeah. Uh, that was three episodes ago, though. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I feel like whenever we hit record at the same time, we can never... <laughs> Something always happens. Well, usually when you count down to something, you have to. The reason you count down is to set the pace, but you change the interval Tempo. between each number. Yeah. So I had no idea when I should hit the button. Um, you know, that's great feedback. And I'm glad <laughs> that you're throwing it my way. And I can take that, I can improve on it, I'll run with it. Imagine uh, if you were at a race and somebody's like, ready? <laughs> Set go. Uh, actually, I think that's more interesting. I don't know. I think that's a far interesting because then, like, who's gonna be ready? You know. But then again, I'm not. I'm not like competing. <laughs> like this isn't a competition because we both need the same audio <laughs> for <Yeah>. the file. <laughs> so really, I only hurt myself because uh, I have to edit this later. We'll only be slightly off. Um, so, yeah. Uh, welcome to the show. I think we have a few. So, the movie today is uh, the 1996 Wachowski siblings film, Bound. Um, and before we get into that, uh, let's... I think we have some things to catch up on. Uh couple things we both saw well separately uh a quiet place two and then i said yeah. wait we should wait and then we'll talk about it now so this is now uh and we're going to talk about a quiet place two for a little bit what um you saw it before i did and then you saw it twice i did see it twice uh because you're such a quiet place franchise fan you gotta uh, see each one twice yeah well i saw it with my dad around father's day Right. Um, because he said that this was his only chance to see it because my mom wouldn't want to watch it, and maybe he doesn't want to go by himself. Because mm-hmm. I can understand the last movie I saw by myself was Up, and it was all these children and me. Wait, you was... went and saw Up by yourself? <laughs> yes. <It's, laughs> I mean, I I really like Pixar movies, like, and I didn't know anybody who liked them. I get the it, but like. I don't know. As an adult, I think I'm waiting a couple couple weeks, <laughs> and I think I might even wait for home video. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Up good movie. Really good. It's, it's a great a, movie. It's probably the best Pixar. I don't know. That first ten minutes is all anyone ever talks about. Yeah, I'm sitting there, room full of families. I'm by myself, weeping. Uh, that's a it's a great movie. Um, well, we're not here to talk about Up, though. No. Oh. We're talking about Quiet Place Two, scene twice. So, what was your like? What What was your big takeaway? Uh, did you Do you think our discussions led to you uh, 
contextualizing movies different even just fun movie theater popcorn movies yeah though i thought a quiet place one actually had some redeeming like art arty stuff to it and quiet place two is just more of the same and it i feel like the only thing it was saying and maybe i'm just being real thick about it is oh the torch is being passed to the kids and you didn't need a movie for that. We could have just right. started with the next quiet place and the parents are dead and the kids are yeah. doing it. I Yeah. I think for a sequel, I don't think they could have gone in any other direction. I thought they did a good job at um, at least being like getting into what happened a little more without giving too much away for possible quiet place three. Um, yeah. Like, and that's what you're supposed to do with a sequel. Um, um, So they're not going to ever give away the secret? Uh, Yeah, I mean, if they do, it's just going to hurt the movie. That's true. Like, And there's a... Limits possibilities for future movies. Because the aliens are pretty contrived, to be honest. They're aliens that can all... That seem really dumb, and they just... (laughs) They hate noises. Like this movie more than any other because they seem to have a bigger uh, special effects budget was just like yeah. shut up. <laughs> yeah. Like I love the scenes where people are running around and the aliens are just like be quiet and just like <laughs> kicking people across the room. I'd like to see a re-edited version where you play the voice of the aliens. And <laughs> their only dialogue is like stop talking. <laughs> I don't like this. <laughs> It's it basic. I bet librarians are just sitting in the audience, be like, mm-hmm, yeah. "Yeah," as if there's just a a gang of librarians, ten yeah. of them just romping, cheering loudly for the aliens. I bet. I bet. Um, yeah, like. The one thing I I just like about the idea of like the reason why I like it being successful. Is like I like that new horror franchises can start and exist. Yeah, because it's Honestly, like you're not like they're not like remaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre again. They're not like yeah, you know they're and that's the one cool thing about horror, and it's always been this way, going back forever. Is they can take a chance on a new uh, idea or iteration on something and like run with it. Mm-hmm. Because usually I the, love new horror. Over, like, you know, um, usually the the budgets are pretty reasonable and like the, the, it's a pretty low risk because horror fans like new things. Yeah. So uh, it's I think it's just great for that reason alone, and you know it's a good concept. Um, I mean, yeah, I I think they show a little bit too much of the monsters in the second one, which kind of takes away from the kind of. I don't. I I didn't feel. I mean, it was suspenseful. I didn't feel like it was as suspenseful as the first one. Yeah, because now you know how to get rid of them. Right. And then, like, but I didn't think it was a bad movie. But and it like, reminds me, they did what I think you should like. It's a safe sequel to make. Like, I think that was the safest route to go. Yeah. Without like really upsetting anyone, like losing any fans or like honestly, they did a good job. Like they just made it 
They just played to what worked. I think what they could have done mm-hmm. much better. Kind of, you you ever watch Planet of the Apes? Uh, yeah, I've seen a long um, time ago. But the sequel to it is, I think, Beneath Planet of the Apes. Um, this is the I'm talking about the original because, okay. yeah, oh great, another Planet of the Apes. Who cares? But what they did was they looked at they they were able to enrich that world by going underground and starting with a new character and mm-hmm. and kind of seeing a totally different aspect of this of this world and i think they could have done that in quiet place too and they dabbled in it yeah. and what i what i think is the other people that are still around yeah. that are all red for some reason why are they so <laughs> red um you know, yeah like oh they had uh, scoot mcnary i like seeing he's an actor he was one of the kind of the I recognize raggedy. that guy. Yeah. Uh, now now uh, I know. Scoot well, I think McNary. he was in one of our, he was the manager in uh Frank. Whoa. That's who he was one of the kind of the I guess evil hillbilly type on the pier. Yeah. Uh so if you're a fan of the show, that's who that is. Uh he's wow. the band manager the slash former piano player. <laughs> uh like yeah. I think the alien should have been far more distant, and it should be more about how the people I in thought, this movie. I I would agree with that. Would have been really interesting to see, like a little more of the society aspect. Um, I think it would have been just kind of more right because it's the they do it in like Twilight Zone or like. Like Cabin Fever is a good horror movie that might play on this, where it's really not the the problem; <laughs> it's the people. It's the people around the problem making it worse. Yeah, I immediately pictured Cabin Boy, and I was like, "What?" But <laughs> now I remember. Yeah, exactly. I think they they could have gone in that angle and focused on that. I think that would have been, and I I honestly thought that's what it was going to be because the opening of the movie was like how the people were reacting. to to it because it was that flashback yeah but oh um, well. but in, in far of like because you know and we're actually going to talk about this with bound a little you know horror movies are usually of their time and of mm-hmm. the social landscape so it's fitting that i guess that the big horror like i mean right now it is the big horror franchise of the moment uh, yeah. Of a place in time where it's you can't be loud when everything is really loud, like yeah, you are constantly kind of being hounded at virtually, and it, it's like that's the. I, I I think thematically it's a it's a really, um, really cool horror movie to or horror story to tell. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Quiet Place 2. Go see it. Sure. If you want. If you want. If you want to, if you want to root for Alien just kicking the crap out of people for being too loud, just then that, this is a movie for you. Grab your librarian friend and head to the movie theater and just have a hooting, hollering time. Honestly, I was... The Aliens were... It was just very satisfying to see them kick somebody across the room. Yeah, it was pretty satisfying because they're kind of like insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like they're unreasonable about noises, right. to be honest. Like, it, it, it 
the narrative to me, like in the first movie, was like they want to get like kill people, and that's what they're sent to do. The narrative in this movie is they just want quiet. Yeah, they just want peace. They're not out to get people. They just don't like how loud everybody is. Yeah, I think it would be funny if like that's who actually like I I don't know who wrote the movie. I know John Chris. Krasinski? Krasinski wrote it, I thought. Well, he took the idea from... Like, it was... The story was based on, like, two other writers, I think. And oh. then he took the script and took it elsewhere. But that'd be funny if, like... It was just, like, written written by Mar... Merrill... Stein, Steinman. And it's just, like, this quiet little old lady that just hates loud people. <laughs> <laughs> she writes this violent horror movie. I would She's, love like, to 80 see years the... old. <laughs> Like in in thirty years, they make the biographical picture of the writing of Quiet Place, <laughs> and everybody's just so loud. She hates it. Uh, yeah. Well, on to the next topic, and well, another thing I don't know. I, I saw a great documentary last night, and it kind of segues into the movie we're going to talk about. Um, and even Grizzly just a little. Man? No, no, it's documentary. Uh, wait, what'd you say? grizzly man no but (laughs) that's a good one uh i watched the documentary that was just put on hbo called woodstock 99 oh it's all about the woodstock 99 festival Alyssa's mom worked there because it wasn't it was in rome right uh rome new york i don't know she said she drove uh limp biscuit around in a golf cart and they were a bunch of jerks yeah, that makes sense because the documentary kind of paints them that way. <laughs> uh, it's it's pretty wild, but also it's pretty. It makes sense now. Like, and I've heard stories of Woodstock '99 just being completely over the top, and like, like the the main difference being like, so they did a successful Woodstock '94, where they kind of had a lot of the music from the era of the 60s but also with the more um kind of thoughtful early grunge era music that was mm. at least a little bit more like uh peaceful yeah right and then woodstock 99 was just all new metal <laughs> all <laughs> oh, no. and this was like six months after columbine <clears throat> and like it was just white dudes from age 18 to 24 in like just a land of just like violence and sexual assault <laughs> and like it was just uh attract like people like it, it's like the worst of humanity pretty much like demonstrated here in this documentary and like it's and it's, it's called woodstock it's called woodstock 99 uh but it may like and at one point they kind of were like showing a clip of like you know, Fight Club and, like, The Matrix and kind of, like, this, uh, like, where things were... Fight Club work... was 99? Yeah. Uh, oh. And kind of where things were culturally, like, it, it, movies of that year, like, Office Space and American Beauty, it was very angst. Whoa. It was, it was very, yeah. uh, like, nothing was really wrong. Like, the economy was doing great. Like, unemployment was low. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were... There weren't, you know, but, like, suburban white dudes were still, like, mad about it. <laughs> yeah. So, like, of that, like, angstiest kind of 
time like that whole festival made sense but like you can kind of see like how something kind of um is bubbling under the surface even when uh and i'll segue this into bound even when like something's not really going on like politically or socially that is kind of of the mainstream so like yeah the movie we watched something to be angry about right and they'll find a reason to be angry about i mean it still goes on today like insert anything like (laughs) but yeah so like we watched bound and i'm just gonna i'm just gonna say a few things and then you can go into your recap isn't Um, that the description of the podcast sure i I don't know uh but i also don't want to like because i want to hear your thoughts on it before i talk too much about it um but you know, a reason why I mentioned this last week, a reason why I wanted to watch it was it's a, a neo-noir, um, like a, which mm. basically just meaning like a new film noir of the new age, right, right. sort of. Uh, and like what a film noir is, like it kind of had its birthplace from like the 40s into the 50s. Um, but it was usually... A private eye set to the backdrop of like a war going on. So like World War Two is like that's what's what's happening. Like it's this like World mm. War Two anxiety and like things are happening. The easiest example of this is, um, like you know you watch like The Big Sleep, which is this like classic Philip Marlowe Humphrey Bogart kind of film noir detective story from the forties, and what the Coen brothers did with the big Lebowski in 98 is they set it in 89 against the backdrop of the, the first Iraq war, uh, George Bush senior. It was, it was kind of a low stakes military effort that really nothing happened of it, but that's because that's the setting of the big Lebowski. Like it's about Mm -hmm. a slacker. So it's about this like slacker, uh, detective and the backdrop that they picked is so perfect because it's such a, it was such a low, like stakes war like <laughs> wow you I, I, really the whole, need to the, know yeah every a lot about noir to even pick up on that i feel and so like what do you like then like to put bound in uh like a context of movies that were of the time uh the ringer just wrote i just found it this morning but they wrote it a couple of weeks ago unknowingly to me even picking this movie um just kind of highlighting of this was the kind of time of neo-noirs like late 80s into the 90s and a little into Mm. kind of dying out in the early 2000s but like this was prime 90s neo-noir like you could write a crime like even paul thomas anderson talks about you could write a crime movie low budget and get it made pretty easily like that's how he wrote heart eight that's how tarantino did reservoir dogs the Wachowski right. uh, uh, siblings did Reservoir Dogs must bound. have been early, really early nineties though, right? Yeah, ninety two. But yeah, it's around the time. Like it, I guess even ninety two was different. like the last seduction. Even uh, uh, Billy Bob Thornton got started with uh, he. I think he wrote the movie and also acted in it. Someone else directed uh, called One False Move, which I watched a couple weeks ago. That was really good. Oh, and so like all these new neo noirs are kind of coming out in the nineties where. You don't really have that backdrop of the war, so like, what do you right. do? 
like what's the backdrop and so a lot of these neo-noirs tackle social issues instead of the real war that's going on yeah like the real war that's like the culture kind of wars um so that's where you start to get things like in bound it deals with a story of two women and that's in one false move it's talks a lot about race uh tensel washington and double in a blue dress uh like african american issues and then like the last seduction which is another great neo-noir of the early 90s is kind of a lot about uh it's it's, it's a heavily heavy, heavy heavy feminist themes uh is so that you, idea of a a backdrop that is some kind of conflict that isn't the primary right. thing is that like a a key aspect of noirs yeah um if you like basically the noirs of the 40s were kind of it was either the wars going on in the background they don't even really talk about it or Mm -hmm. it's post-war and like you have a lot of uh soldiers returning yeah you have a lot of soldiers returning not knowing what to do um having seen like atrocities not really talking about it not even talking about it in the movies um interesting so you kind of have this backdrop and it doesn't really even you know it's not that they get mentioned or it's like involved in the plot it's it's just to kind of set the tone like where are people in the place and time that they are um and sort of uh like the general feeling and it's like an extra layer of suspense and like yeah that's not even talked about it's just it just gives its like kind of genre a place in time and then like the movies overall just kind of are i mean they're also made out of necessity like they took crime novels from the 30s and adapted them which kind of launched out of the early 30s crime like uh mob movies like they made a lot of mafia movies so like it's a genre that kind of it it moves back and forth between different things and like bound takes a lot of these elements and puts them in Interesting. Well, um, now you finally like I never under I see noir written all over the place. I had no idea what the heck it meant, and yeah. now that makes a bunch of sense. And it makes a bunch of sense about World War Two. That was a huge deal at the time mm-hmm. for it to just be like in the backdrop of like all the media that was happening. Yeah, and, yeah it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, noir just by definition is black. Like they use like the whole idea visually it was easy I to it was produce. No infrared. Um, wasn't that the, <laughs> was that, <laughs> uh, like it was easy to produce because they wanted a very moody, suspenseful look. So like, it, they didn't have to fully light how movies were lit during the forties and fifties in that early Hollywood time mm-hmm. of like, everything has to be three, like three piece lighting or whatever, like everything lit fully and beautifully you can just have like a lamp hanging over and someone's silhouetted and it's such a easier lighting setup and you can like, you know, pick a warehouse and you can have like five dudes be criminals. And it's just like production wise, these movies were cheap and easy to make. And also people liked to watch unsavory characters do things. And like, Mm. um, is Casablanca noir? You know, I don't. It's, it's it has noir elements. I wouldn't really 
class. Like, if you wanted to really, I think, in a movie that bound even the Wachowskis had said, uh, really influenced them is just the movies of Billy Wilder, who probably made the most uh, iconically famous neon, or film noir, uh, Double Indemnity. Um, that's probably mm. the one to see. Like, that's probably like that's okay. the quintessential film noir. I love it. It's a great movie. Uh, this is a uh, when did that come out? Forty one or forty two? Wow. Or no, maybe forty four. I'm not. Seems sure. like such a nineties title. Uh, yeah, it's about. It was based on a novella by James Cain, um, and it's just kind of about an insurance salesman, kind of. And like that's another thing is like a lot of elements Does he are die? like. Uh, well, I'm not going to spoil anything, but. Eventually, he's he, not. It's not a vampire movie, right? Well, he was like pretty old in the '40s, so he's definitely dead by now. Okay, <laughs> everybody dies, but maybe not on film. Uh, but like, yeah, like you know, there's L, like you should know film noir tropes probably even by talking about Bound. You know, like the lighting, the harsh lighting, and um, there's usually like a sultry seductress that kind of double crosses the main character. It's usually. Um, the main character is kind of someone that has kind of like, you know, a, what's the expression, a chip on their shoulder, I guess, of like they might oh. have done wrong before or are trying to go on the path of being right or they're trying to do something kind of not necessarily legal. And then like the movie tries to explore like, oh, what's like how can you make someone doing a criminal act be the main character and how can you sympathize with them which right. it was more of a throwaway in the 40s and 50s because it was all just kind of like yeah they're just right yeah you know, just dudes that were like trying to do a crime but then someone does a worse crime <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh so like in the 90s you know now you're you know like a big element of this movie uh was well, I'll save this because let's do your recap first, then we'll talk about Mound. So, okay, you know, there's tropes to film noir. We'll touch on it after because this movie touches on a lot of them, and then uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So, well, I'm very excited because now it was I know probably what to look for. Uh, good that I prefaced that. Yeah, very because there's very a lot much so. to know of film noirs, um, and then also like 90s thrillers were just kind of also thought of just throwaway kind of thrillers but like you know there was really a lot going on to a good amount of them yeah my checklist for noir was is it black and white is there a detective <laughs> with a hat yeah is humphrey bogart in it doesn't have to be a detective it could be a criminal it could be someone that's kind of in a hard spot yeah someone like their tub is yeah got like a clog an ex-con in a hard position you know they don't want to go back they have to but they have to they can't get out of the criminal life. You know, there's aspects sure. of that. But yeah, why don't you do a brief recap of the movie, right. and we'll talk about it. Bound starts off literally with someone who is bound. And right off the bat, I was like, whoa, this is the Matrix. Like, all the, like... You, yeah. You can all see. The things, you can, oh, like, yeah, it's crazy. There's so many, like, camera moves and, like... And they're so good, yeah. like timing and pacing, and like you can see why they like why the Matrix has done so well from like visually. 
of the movie. It's it feels like it's in the Matrix universe, to be honest. Right. In a right. large part, like everything about it, the the design of the sets, the character mm-hmm. outfits, everything is just like this is practice all, for the Matrix. Right. Yeah. They're all wearing black. They're all. I mean, in the first scene, they're wearing in the elevator. They're wearing sunglasses and leather. Yeah. Everybody's got sunglasses on and they're overdressed. Yeah. You could even argue like. The Matrix, I mean, it's a stretch, but it's kind of a sci-fi noir in some ways. Yeah, and the war in the background is between the machines and the humans. Sure. <laughs> but it's actually kind of in the present, in the foreground yeah. as well. So, um, But, yeah, so it starts off uh, Corky. Is Gina yeah. Gershon? Is mm-hmm. the, yeah. Corky is uh, the main, one of the main characters, and she's bound... And you hear a bunch of like dialogue overlaid um, while she's just bound on the floor of a closet. Mm-hmm. After you see the the title card, which is the word "bound," that you're like flying around with the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you're you're obviously like, why, why, why is she bound? Let's let's find out. And uh, we cut to then the movie uh, ends, and it's like literally just it's bound. Yeah. <laughs> But that little sample, yeah. it's all you need. <laughs> um, so she, we cut to, I think they're in an elevator in an apartment building. Maybe I'm missing something, but Gina Gershon's quirky character meets Jennifer Tilly's Violet, Violet character. Yep. Yeah. And Joe Pen- Pantaleone? Pantaleano? Yeah. Yeah, Pantoliano, Joe Pantoliano, maybe. who's also in the Matrix. Yes. He plays uh, Cipher. Mm-hmm. He he really likes those C names because he in this movie he plays Caesar. Caesar. They're Cipher. all in an elevator. Yeah, they're all in an elevator, and uh, you can sense some tension there between Violet and Corky. Yeah, there's a lot of tension. It's yeah, sexual tension. Yeah, specifically you sexual. Cut, tension. You cut the room tension in the room with a butter knife yeah for sure and as i was watching this movie because i'm going to just briefly go through these first Mm -hmm. scenes because i don't want this to be anton describes softcore pornography right which i think was your goal i was i was trying i was like oh man he's gonna (laughs) he's gonna he's gonna have to describe this and he is it's gonna be so funny (laughs) (laughs) yeah so my mom listens to this so uh, even if she didn't, I don't we'll really want to just... We'll keep it uh, family-friendly. Yeah. But anyway, uh, they meet in an elevator. Uh, I don't know if they even talked, but they live in the same apartment building. Corky has just gotten out of prison, you find out, and she's living in this apartment that maybe the superintendent used to live in? Yeah, like I think uh, someone... Li- well, I think the guy that owned the building... I don't even know if he lived in it, but like, yeah, they, he hired uh, Corky to kind of paint and refix up this apartment of someone that has kind of left the apartment for a while. But you don't really got it. Know anything other than that? And the apartment's like right next to Violets and Caesars. Yes, and they make mention of how thin the walls are, and you can mm-hmm. hear through the walls because that's important later. Yeah. Uh, also, the Wachowskis love wallpaper. That's in yeah. the Matrix very heavily, but it's also like a like it's a really good 
you know, I, I think any good filmmaker really can do this or like, and they like does this well. Like it's just a simple visual Yes, like true. theme. You thing. know what like, you're looking you see at when you see on, it. You, well, you see the wall on Violet's end, and you see yep. the wall on her. Like, so it's like Gina Gershon is like touching the wall, and it's like flowers. Like she's looking at Violet, like and they're violet. flowers. And yeah. then Violet's looking at like her wall. It's more kind of it's rough, stilted. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of like G, like Gina gershon's character so like they're just using yeah. the wall to represent that they want to be looking at each other kind of yeah and uh to to mention that corky who is gina gershon she's her clothes are always like dirty and tattered mm-hmm. and uh covered in paint and yeah whatever she looks like she's constantly working on a car or something yeah and violet on the other side of things is always dressed very provocatively uh in um very clean and crisp outfits uh she it's clear she cares very much about her appearance uh at one point i don't well you see that corky's gotta rotor root her tub Mm -hmm. um because it's clogged and it's really gross and uh, Violet calls to have the, a yeah. plumber come, and well, she Violet tries to get Corky to come, pretty much. Yeah, like you find it's, out it's a it's she, a it's a it's a easy it's just an excuse to get Corky there. Yeah, Which, exactly. It's a really it's a it's a subtle nod to double indemnity. It was a thing where the female character. Uh, calls back the insurance salesman that had visited her before, but mm-hmm. it's really just an excuse to kind of get him to come over and like, they can, it, it's oh. just a subtle nod to that, but go on. Interesting. I'll have to watch that. Then. Um, so then they're comparing their tattoos and Violet's like, Oh, I like your battle axe tattoo or blah, blah, blah. And Violet's like, I got a tattoo too. And it's on my chest. Uh, and it, I think it's a flower. Um, and Corky's like, oh, I like your tattoo, blah, blah. And then they start, um, Corky touches Violet and then they start making out and it's very sensual. Mm -hmm. And then later Violet meets Corky outside and then they have sex and it's also sensual. Yeah, it basically uh, they just go into an affair. They just start having an yeah. affair kind of gradually. Yeah. Um, which kind of sets up the motivation of like them caring for each other. Like that's why yeah. they want to do what they ultimately do is because they want to now uh, provide for each other and kind of get out of the situation that Violet's in. Yeah. Speaking of that, we mm-hmm. find out during all these scenes when they're chatting that. Corky was in prison for five years for wealth redistribution. (laughs) Which is a good way of phrasing it. (laughs) Yeah. And Violet is dating Caesar, who is a gangster. And Mm -hmm. he's part of the mafia, but it's funny they even call it that anymore. But they just call it the business these days. Um, Violet, uh, they, they also discuss about how Violet is not interested in men, but she found that she's good at, uh, being appealing to men and right. uh, she is the sultry dame 
of the film noir genre. She is the uh, femme fatale, if you will, is the actual name for it. Oh, interesting. Uh, that's what they refer to kind of the female characters in film noirs as the femme fatale. Like uh, someone the main character might fall for, but ultimately betrays them, typically. Got it. And in this movie, Violet is just a central. Almost every character is taken is charmed by her and wants mm-hmm. to um wants her like and will do anything for her kind of thing mm-hmm. and this t- to some odd degrees maybe convenient po- convenient plot points um and yeah violet and corky they like each other uh what's funny at one point is caesar catches them one day making mm-hmm. out on the couch and kind of uh, like he, does, he turns yeah, around he see them. and she just thinks someone was there and like he's yeah yeah but based then, on how she's dressed he thought it was a man and then he sees that it's a woman he's like oh ha 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 he's, yeah. who cares like there couldn't possibly be anything going right. on between women yeah uh, and yeah so there's more character development for caesar at one point um it sounds like money went missing mm-hmm. and uh, Corky's outside and she sees a bunch of other gangsters, including some guy from Law and Order. Yeah. So the name. guy that, uh, I f- yeah, I forget the character's name. The guy that was, that also kind of had an affair with Violet uh, had been ciphering mo- like, ci- the right word? Oh, that uh, was the guy? Yeah. Has, oh, been, t- has been like skimming him. money from the business. And Got then it. they find out. Shelly. So, uh, yeah, Shelly. And then they find out. And that's when Shelly gets his uh, comeuppance. Yeah. So Johnny, who's the Law and Order guy, it, and a gang of people bring Shelly up to Christopher Caesar's Maloney? apartment. What? Is that Chris, his name? Right? Like the actor? I think. So. Oh, I don't know. I had Amazon's X-ray on and it didn't do anything. It wasn't telling me who was oh. in the scenes. Which, to be honest, is a very useful feature. More. Did you rent it, or did you get the free trial from Epics? I rented it. Oh, you should have just got the. I if you get the free trial of Epics through Amazon, you get Epics for free for seven days, and then you can just cancel it. But they had Bound on there. Yeah, I just feel. And then bad you could watch it that. through Amazon. What do you got to feel bad about? The movie came out thirty years ago. I just. I think about all the people who work at Epics who are like in their company meetings. They're like, hey, we're going to really succeed. And we got all these people doing free trials. And now they're back on the beat because I wouldn't really. They get tons of people forgetting to cancel. <laughs> I guess I, I, I do it all the time. I have no I, I, feel, <laughs> I don't feel bad about it at all. Right now I'm getting Showtime and stars for 99 cents for the next two months. I'm going to cancel right before they drop the price. Well, if if anybody knows things about me, it's that the thing I have most sympathy for is corporations. Yeah, I feel bad. You for have them. a soft spot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, where were we? Yeah, uh, there's a bunch of gangsters in Caesar's apartment. They bring yeah. Shelley up into the bathroom, and they're beating mm-hmm. him up into the toilet. Um, and they, yeah, they kind of get him to tell him where the money is. So then they go and get the money. Oh, and they're cutting his fingers off, too. Yeah. With, uh... Oh, yeah, that's important, because later... With, uh, flower clippers. Yeah. 
which, which is interesting because their name's Violet. I wonder if that's right. supposed to mean. Oh something. yeah, that's good. Good. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't have thought of it without. I mean, a recap. The, sh- the movie's so tightly written that like everything kind of becomes important later. So like, yes. even just something similar to that, and like the bathroom, like, and most of the movie takes place in the apartment. Like, it doesn't even really go out. Like, it's so confined. Yeah. And they do such a great job of not making it feel like it. I feel like when I was watching it, I was like, this is a Reservoir Dogs kind of thing. They they wanted to make two sets, and they didn't want to spend a lot of money. Yeah. That's two sets being the two different apartments. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of that tightness of the writing, uh, the affair between Corky and Violet does not... It's not slow. It's like, boom, we're in love. <laughs> like they they didn't pace it out or anything. It wasn't like yeah, oh multiple like, weeks. I don't know. I feel like it, it takes up most of the first thirty minutes of the movie. It, and like you know, you, it was it a totally feels different movie. repetitive. And like it feels like by the end of it, like oh, it's such a thing. Like it's such a, it's such a these two are kind of in love kind of thing, which isn't typical for noirs sorry i was yawning because i'm Um, so boring no i just uh i stayed up very late watching bound oh i I think i started watching it at like 11 um but it it held my attention uh especially the second like the end of the movie was yeah really like pedal to the metal Mm -hmm. uh which what we're going to talk about right now um so uh, there's a bit of tension between corky and violet because at at this point violet is very open and honest with corky about just she's kind of just sleeps with anybody because it it benefits her and that's Mm -hmm. how she got to where she is with caesar and um with shelly and and everything and she she says everybody does what they got to do effectively to make money. I'm no different right. from you. And um, well, and also you could argue like you know Violet is trying to set herself up to get out of the situation she's in. She yeah. is herself bound, which I think is what the t- in a lot of ways the title comes from because the actual right. bound binding in the movie is not that very little long. binding. Yeah. You, if you thought you were in for some binding, sorry, to sorry, sorry, BDSM fans. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean they still have leather. They do have a lot of leather. All right, you might like it. <laughs> but if you're really into that, watch the Matrix movies because they yeah more leather. Don't pull any punches there. Um, <laughs> That's what they were thinking when they were ma- like, yeah, I really like this Bound movie, but I think we need in the, our for our next movie more leather. Yeah. And each and Matrix movie just then they wrote goes the Matrix around that. They actually yeah. didn't have any other idea except for le- they started with leather <laughs> and yeah, worked I, backwards. I feel like they probably <laughs> did. Um, so there's a bit of tension between Corky and Violet because Corky doesn't really respect some of Violet's decisions and thinks that like she's yeah. this tough person and because she's honest about being a lesbian. Mm-hmm. She's like upfront about it, and she thinks that it's kind of that Yeah, that that Violet keeps it secret, right? And um, does all this stuff, and it kind of sets up Violet as someone who 
controls her destiny, but not but to be with implicit means. Like she's not like out in the open about things. She's not taking control of her life in a clear and, and very obvious way, which is a setup for later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, at some point, they decide let's get the money. Let's get money from Caesar and go off and have our, start our life together because we're in love. And the plan was to steal the money that Caesar reclaimed from Shelley, uh, which is $2 million, $2.176 million, which was covered in blood. And Caesar had to wash it all, and he hung it up. Um, he was very methodical. He hung it all up on clotheslines and ironed all the money and put it in this case. Mm-hmm. And their plan, uh, which is very contrived, to be honest, because yeah. they, they're they expecting – their plan is to steal the money. Well, I thought this was a really cool way of doing it. As they're describing what the plan is, they're also showing and cutting to the future the actual acting out of the plan. Yeah, I thought that was a good way of like showing that scene while keeping the movie going. Yes. So they're in Corky's apartment, and Corky's explaining what you're going to do is you're going to go and you're going to drop uh, the because oh, the setup was that uh, Johnny, who's like mm-hmm. the real violent guy, who's the Law and Order guy. His dad and him are going to come pick up the money mm-hmm. that evening. And there's always this little ritual of the the dad is like the, the real mafioso, or at least the, he's yeah. the brother of the main mafioso. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever they come, they always have this special glass of scotch. So the plan is for Violet to accidentally drop the bottle of scotch and then say, oh, I got to go pick it up. And... Uh, meanwhile, as she goes to pick it up, Corky's going to sneak into the apartment, steal the money, replace it with newspaper, mm-hmm. and then uh, sneak out with the money. And when Violet gets back, she's going to frame Johnny by saying she saw Johnny around to make right. Caesar th- think that Johnny took the money out of the case. Now, this is very odd to me because mm-hmm. Caesar thinks that Johnny immediately assumes that Johnny would have snuck into the apartment in that very small window of time, stolen the money secretly while Caesar's in the shower and you never see him, and uh, replace it with newspapers. And And Caesar very quickly jumps to this conclusion that Johnny is capable of all of that, and I think that that's kind of a weakness. Well, but it, to be fair, he is quick to turn around on to Violet and say, did you open the door for him? Like, he puts it together. Mm. Okay. There is that moment where he's like, it could have been so easy for you to have accidentally dropped that, and which was right. Like, that's how the scheme happened. Like, it was yeah. from the dropping and then the door opening. But he was just wrong at who was entering. He had no idea it was um, quirky. Right. So, um, So far, everything's going perfectly according to plan, Corky and Violet's plan, that Caesar thinks it's Johnny. But their their thought was that Caesar would be so concerned that he would run and he Mm -hmm. would leave and then they could just go on their merry way. Well, Mm -hmm. Caesar isn't just – they didn't anticipate this. He was like, 
everybody's going to expect me to run. Instead, mm-hmm. I'm going to be really open and honest yeah. about this. And when Johnny and Gino come up, the I'm going to not be shy. I'm going to be really frank about Johnny. You took the yeah. money. I think and, it's great because whenever there's like a like a kind of a grift movie or something where a scheme is being uh, performed, like. You know, they have the idea of, of course, working flawlessly. But, you know, as an audience member, you know, everything has to go off the rails. And you're just basically wondering, how is this going to go off the rails? And it's it basically through Caesar. Yeah. Caesar yeah. just throws a lot of curveballs. Well, I think they did a really good job of, like, you see Caesar as a gangster mafia guy in the beginning. But he's never, he's he's always got his hands clean. Right. Any, Though Johnny does get hit by Caesar, but it's off camera and you you mm-hmm. only hear about it. So you just think Caesar's like kind of like involved, but not really like he doesn't have the the chestnuts to. Is that yeah. a line from this movie? Sure. <laughs> I th- maybe I'm th- mixing it with a YouTube video. That's episode. the whole thing about film noir is you can come up with any sort of fake line. Like, yeah, <laughs> look at the chestnuts on that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so to speed things up, um, Gino and Johnny come over. Caesar's like, oh, Johnny, I know what you did. Um, why don't you open the case? And Johnny's like, how am I going to open this case? It's locked. Because... Uh, Mm-hmm. It is locked, and uh, Corky used her special earrings that are meant for lock picking to mm-hmm. steal the money. And Caesar's like, "Okay, yeah, sure, but here's the key, Johnny." And and Johnny opens the case, and there's newspapers in there, and he's like, "What?" I mean, okay. everything makes sense from Caesar's point of view. Like he couldn't just yeah. like apologetically go, "Someone stole the money." Like. Yeah. He's trying to build this up as like outrage on him, so like yeah. they understand that he didn't take the money. He's just as mad as they would be. Yeah. So at this point, Caesar's pulled a gun on Johnny and's like, "Gino, your son is stealing from you," and he's the one who replaced this case with newspapers. And Johnny's like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Um, like, you're out of your mind. You're a dead man." And Caesar really mm-hmm. does not like Johnny. At this yeah. point, Gino, the old man, gets up and he's like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Stop pointing the gun! Stop pointing the gun!" And he's stepping in between Caesar. Caesar has a lot of respect for Gino, yeah, but Gino gets a little too close, so Caesar shoots him. Boom! That just, he, that's yeah. the big curveball because now yeah. he just shoots everybody. <laughs> yeah, which there's this is an interesting part because it kind of becomes shoots, a whole other movie now. Oh yeah, because it doesn't even but, matter. Like the like, you set set aside the money scheme right now. I mean, that's gonna be important later. But like, now it's like, oh, Violet is with Caesar, and they just killed like the biggest mafia boss. Yeah, and like they have this whole new set of problems. <laughs> at this point, yeah, I have no idea where the movie's gonna go, and it right. gets really interesting at this point because you don't know what's gonna happen. This, yeah. Everything that you held sacred is mm-hmm. been undone. And from here on, like, you know, it's the point where 
so it's a whole new movie now they have this whole new problem and then just they just throw in like these great like suspense sequences like when the cops stop by yep and like it's just these little moments of tension that really make the movie interesting and like fun to watch and it's like you know the cops like on his way out and he's stepping in the blood (laughs) like yeah uh you know he caesar has a gun in his like behind his back but like then the police officer asks to use the bathroom there's a dead body in the tub with like of course the hand is hanging over the tub and like one drop of blood is dripping and the police officer doesn't see it uh but yeah there's just these great kind of like tempting like funny like almost like absurd comedy movie now like of like bad things kind of piling on yeah and and still caesar thinks that as long as he can find the money he can explain to everybody what happened um so at one point they go to they look in johnny's car no money there they go Mm -hmm. to johnny's apartment and they trash it no money there Caesar's starting to get worried. He calls up Mickey, who's another guy who who really likes Violet, who's another gangster, and says, hey, the plane never landed with Gino in it. Or it landed, but I haven't seen him. And tries to, like, kind of control the narrative while he tries to figure this out. And uh, he is now starting to suspect Violet is involved in this, um, even more so. And they're back at the apartment, and he's getting ready and showering the blood off or something uh and trying to like figure out how to get rid of the bodies and what to do next and he walks in on violet on the phone with corky Mm -hmm. and he thinks that violet is talking to somebody else and that violet is the the key conspirator here so he uses the redial on the phone and it immediately rings in the apartment next door to Corky. Corky picks up, doesn't say a word, and Caesar thinks Violet's been talking to Mickey. Mm-hmm. But uh, Corky hangs up, and Caesar calls back again, and Violet and Corky's like, "Oh shoot, I don't want to like answer the phone." So she lets it ring. The walls are thin. Caesar yeah. hears that she'd been and calling to the apartment. Now he the knows what's really going on. Yeah, so he uh, he goes after. Corky ties her up and says, where's the money? And he's got Violet tied up. Mm-hmm. And he's going to start uh, chopping fingers. Yeah. And instead of cutting off Corky's fingers, he cuts off Violet's because he knows that Corky well, really he's likes He's going Violet. to. He did out. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, the, well, then that's when Mickey shows up. Like right yeah. before. And, and he needs Violet now because yes. Violet, Mickey's going to wonder where Violet is. And if Violet's not there acting normal, Caesar's done for. So now, yeah, he Violet has to, and this is kind of their opportunity to like, Violet really has to play this smart. And it's this whole other sequence of really funny, suspenseful moments. Like, you know, they're hiding the fact that the murder happened. He's Mickey's like, why does the furniture all moved around? Yeah. <laughs> like, and they don't know that you know there's a dead body in the bathroom. <laughs> he's he's like, oh, but Violet probably did it. Yeah, it's it's kind of a funny comedy of errors in a way too. Like it's just uh, this back and forth. But yeah, 
I forgot how they got Mickey to leave. They just they gave him the money. Oh, the and kid. they said, uh, yeah, because they said that you know the mafioso and you know the people that they killed. They said that they never showed, and right. that they're going to go look for him. And then Violet makes up the phone call from the other room, saying, "Oh, pretend I'm them." And that, that, oh, yeah. that we've been in a car accident. Right, right, So they right. tell Mickey that they never showed up. Oh, it turns out they're in a car accident, and, but and that they just called. And so they, that gets rid of them. Yeah. And I forget at what point. Um, yeah. I mean. They, they do go over to the apartment. They yeah. knock over the paint barrels. They find that the money was hidden in the paint yeah. barrels. It's such a rapid sequence of events. You don't have to describe it moment by moment. There's just so many twists and turns of like them trying to maneuver through this night and through this situation yeah. of like basically they're just trying to hand off $2 million. Like, mm-hmm. you know, and here's everything that could have gone wrong. Um, but you can skip through towards... I'm going to skip right to the the, the end. Sure. Because it's uh, basically, it's hard to describe. I don't think you can yeah. really, it's, there's so many twists and turns and back and forths and like little suspenseful moments that it's not really a, even the story anymore. It's, it's basically right. just them. It's exciting uh, and inconsequential. An yeah. Um, so at the end, they're in Corky's apartment. Violet has got a gun. Caesar's about to like kill Corky because he uh, he has the money now. He has everything he needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Violet has the gun aimed at him, and Caesar's like, "You're not going to kill me, otherwise you would have done it long ago." And it's true. Well, <laughs> why did yeah. you, like if they had never planned this whole thing, they could have just killed Caesar and had way less yeah. deaths. And um, so Violet shoots him. Uh, which is the surprise of the movie that she had it in her all along. Mm-hmm. And then they have a lot of money, and now the, they have a nice new truck, and they drive off into the distance, and the that's it. I mean, really, you know what their plan should have been? Just shoot them at the beginning. Yeah. Make them disappear, take the money, tie up Violet in the apartment, and then when the Mafio guys get there... They see Violet tied up and be like, I don't know, he took the money and ran. But really, he's just dead and they have the money. So that yeah. they're looking for him anyways. Because that's where they are at the end of the movie. Mickey's looking for Caesar because they think that he just took off with the money. But really, he's dead. Same yeah. thing would have happened. A lot less drama. But then, of course, it wouldn't have been as a fun movie. They should have called you. They should have. I And you know what? If I would have... You know, if I would have recommended those changes, that probably would have brought the runtime down to about eighty minutes. Perfect yeah, it length. was. Yeah, I don't, I like the twist. It wasn't. Yeah, it was. It was a pretty good movie. So I saw the trailer for this at Nighthawk, the because they yeah. were gonna show it, and I was like, this does not look at all like the kind of movie I'd be interested in. But really, it was you said a that really good movie. I said that out loud, and they're like, please, please be quiet. And then an alien came and kicked me in the, across the <laughs> Uh Yeah, it's, and then, you know, and then, of course, the big tension that was kind of set up through, um, you know, not knowing if Violet was really going to, you know, screw Corky over. Um, they're also yeah. playing on the film noir 
trope that the femme fatale normally betrays the oh. uh, the protagonist. That's usually what happens. So, and in this case, they don't, and they ride off into the sunset, a brand new Chevy truck, and uh, live happily ever after. But like, I was thinking after the movie ended last night. Or no, I watched it Friday night. Um, you know, if you... So they break a lot of tropes of classic film noirs like that. Um, and there's some subtle nods, like in Double Indemnity, um, Barbara Stanwyck, the femme fatale, kind of wears this fake blonde wig and like sort of meant to indicate that, you know, she's not, you know, honest or like... A, and they kind of do it like Jennifer Chili's hair... It, you know, it kind of looks almost like a 40s style wig, almost like mm. the way that it's kind of propped up, but it's also black. And I think that they mended the color palette really well to where it looks like you can kind of think that. And then, you know, um, I th- if you look at it, like there's an interesting piece of trivia on IMDb saying that, like, oh, if you turn, they should make Corky a guy. And we and the Wachowskis are like we don't want to make that movie. We've seen that movie a million times, um, and of course they made the right decision because it's a way more interesting movie. It, mm-hmm. it has that setting, that backdrop I mentioned before, yep. where it just adds this other layer of kind of social commentary and like this other added element of suspense and like characters that are not a part of the mainstream. And uh, and it's it, it's interesting too because it is a sign of the times. Like back then, yeah. it was so underground mm-hmm. to 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 be a lesbian that when Caesar sees the two of them together, his first thought is, "Oh, there couldn't possibly right. be anything going on." And you know, they're and he's pretty. And when they find out Corky is involved, you know, they you know the amount of slurs just. Yep. go up <laughs> like yeah. it's you know that's you know that's the culture war battle that's kind of raging on the background but mm-hmm. uh so if you this movie could have been made in the point of view like 50 years ago from caesar's character and jennifer tilly would have been pointed as the villain that double crossed him Oh. Like that's what I feel like this movie was really trying to do. Like I think that's very cool. They took Caesar and they made him the antagonist, but it fifty years ago he would have been the protagonist. And he would have been double crossed. And you know, it wasn't unlikely in film noirs for the main character to die. That's really neat. And I like I I there's nothing in this that would have been like that couldn't have been the case 50 years ago. And so that's why I think it's like a really interesting movie to see. Cause it's kind of like, well, no, this genre can't just be, you know, painting every femme fatale is the, the one screwing over the main leading guy. What happens from that point of view? What happens from this character? And then how can we show that? And then it's a completely different movie with so many added layers that it just makes it, very suspenseful Uh um you know it just makes it something you haven't seen before that's 
very cool. Now, thank you for bringing me up on Noirs to even be able to see that. You get your point. Um, All right, cool. For this one. <laughs> and I had a tennis coach back in high school who really loved film noirs. I don't know if you'd appreciate this one, but maybe he would get it if he saw, like, hey, yeah. they're turning it on its head. Yeah. Um, I think it is a good, of the 90s film noirs that came out, it, it is one that really kind of flipped the genre on its head. And there's a lot of, like, kind of these movies that came out, you know. I mean, famous ones are, like, The Usual Suspects and L.A. Confidential and, um, you know, Reservoir Dogs and stuff. But, like, this was one that I thought was really kind of original and kind of just well done. Like, it's an exciting movie. It's like, you know, they don't even, they don't behold themselves, like, to elements of film noir thinking that they have to but they can still kind of play with the genre and flip it on its head yeah uh so yeah film noirs social stuff crime i want to watch more well oh so i get my point right yep are we gonna talk about next movie uh yeah all right unless you got any more questions Comments? No, I think that's exactly the missing I, piece I talked I a needed. lot before the review or your overview, so. Well, I, like I was wondering what it was trying to say, but now I get it. It's trying yeah. to say something in the context of that framework for making right. a noir, and that's and, really cool. Yeah. And there's like subtle thematic stuff of like, oh, she's bound to this man. So, yeah, like you could talk about it like really like that, but like I think looking at it from the lens of a film noir flipped for the modern age. That's really kind of what it is. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed the movie and I know the next game on the game podcast is also kind of film noir. And And I I didn't know what I meant when I said that, but now I do. Well, I think you were going like the imagery of it was very detective film noir. And I think that's what most people think of mm-hmm. film noirs. And yeah. they're not, you know, you're not wrong. It's just that there's it, there's a lot going on to the genre itself and it's been kind of reshaped and redone over the years and it kind of morphs into these other things and comes back like film noir of that 90s was also kind of a natural progression of the 80s um the like i would say it's the 80s erotic thrillers of the 80s uh which was this other big subgenre that like brian de palma kind of made in like movies like basic instinct kind of were big and you would just kind of have like you know and, and bound took a lot from that too like just you know steamy sultry sex scenes with like yeah. characters doing bad thing that sort of thing but like even those 80s erotic thrillers were kind of based from 70s crime movies that were really you know so the genre always kind of morphs and comes back and it's really interesting to see i had a lot of fun with it i want to do another film noir for next week next time uh so that's your first hint all right uh it's also directed i mean at the time bound came out they were the wachowski brothers uh of course they transitioned um this is by another of another set of brothers but they did not transition okay uh 
so two more brothers making a movie. Mm-hmm. They're pretty famous. The Coens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a film noir. And uh, I, th- it's a underrated in their filmography. It's not Barton Fink, because that's not really a film noir. Yeah, I mean, it's not, but, like, yeah. It's not that. It's not the Hudsucker proxy? Nope. And I want I the reason why I'm picking it is because it's kind of everything I just said about these film noirs. Uh, kind of take that away, <laughs> and I think that's kind of what makes. And also, I think it'd be fun to do a Coen Brothers movie to talk about. I I feel like this film noir doesn't even like it, everything I've said the last hour just kind of tosses it out the window, <laughs> and it's very much based in '40s film noir. It's set in the, well, actually, it's set in the 50s, I think. Or maybe late 40s, early 50s. I'm sure I've heard of this. I'm just trying to think of all the... Another clue? Sure. Stars Billy Bob Thornton. It's not the man who wasn't there. It is the man that wasn't there. Oh, oh, cool. Yeah. I got got it. You got it? You got it without me basically giving it away well as you said a very famous set of directors every other director is like a name i don't even haven't heard of i never well this was the wachowskis were probably the biggest names that we've done on the show Mm -hmm. and now Now it's coen Coen brothers Brothers. yeah so i'm trying to move the show we're only gonna talk more mainstream (laughs) yeah next week Uh, transformers dark of the moon so this is the 2001 film the man who wasn't there by the Coen Brothers. Yeah, because that sounds like a pretty popular title. Uh, and this was in 2001. So I guess you could say uh, 90s noir, neo-noir was on its way out. And I don't even know if I'd even classify this as a neo-noir. I just but think at this noir. point, we got... Like, I think I was going to say that we had 9-11, but that's not... 9-11 was like I'm surprised, tail end of 20... Yeah, like, there. I mean, I guess there were some... Noirs of the 2000s with the backdrop of the Iraq War. But um, but you would need to be... You couldn't be in 2001. You'd have to be later because you have to make the movie. Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang in 2004. I actually have seen that movie. That's a good one. But I was like, this isn't a noir because he's not wearing a hat. I feel like from there on out, there's a lot of like kind of Hollywood kind of noir. But... Hmm. I think uh, the man who wasn't there, I think, is just interesting on its own for what it kind of addresses. Like, it might use the backdrop of, like, a James N. M. Cain novel, um, you know, the writer of Double Indemnity. It's kind of... Mm-hmm. The Coen brothers were kind of known to, to kind of mimic styles, like, you know, the Big Lebowski is kind of the big sleep. Right. Uh, the Miller's Crossing is kind of... Um, of the gangster uh, kind of movies of the time. Um, Blood Simple's kind of like a Jim Thompson kind of novel. Hmm. And uh, like they always kind of over the years mimic different film noir writers and do their own thing. So I think it's a very, and this is just one of my, I'm just going to say it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Just one of the best. 
I don't know. Okay. So, yeah. That's next week. Cool. Well, I really loved Bad Santa. No, I'm kidding. If you I, love I've Bad Santa... I've never I mean, seen Bad Santa. Really? It's really good. Apparently, it is uh, Jenna, Alyssa's sister's like favorite movie. Yeah, like I think it was around the same time, or maybe like a little after this movie came out. I think the Coen brothers may have been consultants on the script, but never credited. I might be oh. wrong on that. Wow. But. Okay, well, maybe I'll see Bad Santa. It just seemed like a goofy name for a movie. Um, it's pretty funny, but uh, this movie, yeah. Uh, the man who wasn't there is Billy Bob Thornton, who hardly says anything in the movie, and which apparently is very contrary to Billy Bob Thornton in real life, who always talks. <laughs> That's why they made the movie, because they couldn't get him to show up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be near him in a quiet place. Yeah, otherwise, <laughs> the monsters. All right, we'll see you next time. All right, see ya. See ya.